We are uh, talking about this thing that you heard about in this passage. If you are a Bible nerd or grew up in the church, you probably are familiar with it. But before we get into it, uh, when I was young, a young lad, maybe about your age, so young that uh, the memory is very vague, I would go to the Korean supermarket with my father, and we'd stand outside as he tried to give uh, gospel tracts to people, which in retrospect is very strange because 99% of Koreans I've ever met went to church, so I don't really know what the point. But if you're not familiar with what a gospel track is, it's this like little small booklet usually, and it folds out or something, and it says a lot of stuff um, trying to convince people to become Christian. And often, I don't really know what the thing said, but you know, Bible verses and scary pictures and things like that. Um, I was a baby back then, right? So I didn't really understand what was happening, but I do remember that I liked going to do this because every time we went, um, my dad would buy me a popsicle. And uh, little children are easy to bribe. So that was my first experience with this thing called uh, evangelism. Right? The second time that that was like a thing very pertinent in my life was when I was in high school. And by now, most of you have heard me talk ad nauseum about how I was in high school, my Bible thumping past and so forth, right? Um, if you're newer here, the only th there's two things you need to know. I carried my Bible around every day, my junior year, under my arm and on my desk. And uh, also for many years, I would go to school way early and get in front of the flagpole and pray. That's the, that paints all the picture you need to know. So, uh, and in those days, I was part of this Christian club. And we had this um, sort of internal mission, this desire to convert the whole school, right? Uh, we, really, we really believed that that's what we should do. But we didn't want to seem like a bunch of crazies, right? I mean, after all, we're still in high school, fraught with all that social anxiety. Um, so we didn't want to seem crazy. So most of what we did was covert, right? Like, you know, walking around school and praying that the walls would come down like Jericho or uh, touching lockers and, don't look at me like that, praying for uh, people, <laughs> people whose lockers we would be touching. Right? But one day we decided, you know what? We are not being hardcore enough. Uh, we need to get out there. So we decided we're going to do this. We're just going to go and we're going to fucking talk to people. I didn't say the F word back then because I didn't swear, but we were going to talk to people about the Lord, and we gathered together, and I remember we, we like came in this common spot first, and we like all, like a little circle, and we're like praying, you know, guide us in this journey, whatever, um, and then I, I was nervous as hell, uh, and I walked out, right? Who would I, who, who should I talk to? Uh, you know, I wasn't like bullied in high school, I was in, in middle school, middle school is the worst time of anyone's life, but I still feared ridicule and that sort of thing. I didn't know what I would uh, say to somebody. It's not like we had written a script. You know, I sort of was hoping that I'd open my mouth and all this amazing uh, words would start pouring out, which, you know, is a passage from the Bible, which I read every day and knew very well, and I was hoping that that would happen to me. And so I walked around for a long time looking for someone to talk to, right? Like, no, not them, you know, not her. Kind of have a crush on her. That would be weird. Uh, you know, there's some Korean kids. Over. My school was like very Korean. A lot of Korean kids everywhere. And again, like I'm like, they probably go to church. I don't need to do that. So uh, I walked around until I finally saw this guy sitting by himself 
on like one of these planters, 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 sitting there and eating his lunch by himself. He looked like a very sad underclassman. I was like, So I got up the nerve, I walked up to him, I said, I said, I'm Tim, and he's like, I think he said his name was Jose. And I think I asked him about whether or not he goes to church or believes in God or something. I mean, uh, this dude was so shy that I could uh, barely hear him speak. Um, I don't remember anything he said, <laughs> except that uh, I was just like, okay, well, you know, we have this Christian club at lunch every day in this room, you should come, and I left. I left, I felt like, whew, I did my part, felt good, I met some friends up to eat, forgot about the whole thing. Uh, I bring up this story, um, these stories, again, because we're talking about this passage, which is from the post-Easter Matthew story. If you were here on Easter, we actually read this passage to you, right? And this passage is often referred to as, anybody know? Not you, you pastor. Thank you. The Great Commission. Right. As far as ending, endings go in like a gospel, I think this is a pretty nice ending. Right? It ends with this, uh, all, I, will, I am with you until the end of the age. Inspiring words. Uh, compared to the other gospels, I think it's much better. But it also includes lines like, go uh, and make disciples of all nations. And thus, this Great Commission, this passage has become a rallying cry, a sort of central point for a lot of efforts out there to evangelize and convert people. Uh, And we also know that a lot of efforts to evangelize and convert people are uh, deeply whack. And um, when you mix this kind of divine mandate, so to speak, along with human beings, you often get not good things, um, right? And we're seeing that so many times, all the time, in our country right now, in Alabama, and all these things, these Christians who take what they believe is the word of God and um, impose it on people in destructive ways. Right? And so, the spread of Christianity is, we are, like I just said, fraught with history of colonialism, racism, sexism. Anybody else want to throw on an ism for me? What does that about cover? Okay, a lot of things. In fact, the spread of Christianity began mostly with, uh, not well, there was a time in the Bible, but later, across the world, it started with the markets, right? With the open markets and trade. And so, ever since then, the strange romance between religion, a religion of the oppressed, and the powers of capital and trade are still entangled today, right? This whole thing is a weird and bizarre part of this religion, right? A couple of years ago, we had a town hall. We were trying to ratify our first ever governing document, a charter-ish sort of thing. And there was a debate, if you remember, because there was a word in the document that said evangelism. And some people were like, we got to take that word out. We don't like that word. And other people were like, mostly Neil, was like, we need to keep the word in. We, we, we should reclaim this word. Uh, I personally was very indifferent, to be honest. Uh, I didn't really, it, w- it wouldn't have mattered to me either way. But that little debate there underscored this point, right? There is a deep 
felt discomfort with the idea of evangelism, the word evangelism. Uh, maybe this is a little sidebar, but let me just be um, a little nerdy in religious studies-ish ways for you for a second. Uh, not all religions, we know, are sort of missional by nature or are concerned with the spreading of things. Um, so-called sort of primitive religions or primary religions, religions early on in human civilization, right, when they're studied by sociologists and anthropologists and philosophers, these are religions that are like very communal in nature. They're, you, you're born into them, you grow up in them. It's just a part of what it means, to, it's just what it means to be part of a tribe. And so these religions were not very concerned with making other people part of it. What happened was when we have these secondary religions, ones that are started by leaders or reformers, people who are beginning something new. And these secondary religions are the ones that often have this zealous mandate to bring people into the fold, right? But even there, there's a, a lot of matter of degree. So Judaism, you know, we don't really think of it as a religion that evangelizes, so to speak. It does have some history of that, uh, the time of the Maccabees and so forth, but by and large, there has been also mandates against spreading the Jewish faith. Uh, and also, by and large, the Jewish uh, community has been mostly concerned with just maintaining their right to exist, uh, which makes a lot of sense, you know. Um, Islam, surprisingly, also not uh, a strong and long history of missional work. Um, there's not an explicit command to do so as it contains in their, in their texts. And so what has happened, we know that there are Islamic missionaries now, it's actually a 20th century thing that came out out of a sort of counter-Christian movement. And so uh, Islamic fervor for spreading that faith is very recent. Buddhism is more similar to Christianity um, in that its founding people and also its canonical texts do uh, emphasize this notion of spreading this truth in Buddhism to other people across the world, right? And of course, all that is to say that Christianity falls squarely into this camp of being a missionary religion, right? These final words of Jesus can really uh, be said to sum up Christianity in a very concise way. To be part of the Christian community is to be someone who attempts to share it with other people. It's not a secondary element. Right, to use a political metaphor, the sharing wing of Christianity is like one of the three co-equal branches of government. It is not the EPA or the interior or whatever. Right? It is part of the main structure. Now, before you tune me out because you didn't like what I just said there, I want to take one second here. We did this again a little bit at that town hall a few years ago, but like we do at welcome tables, um, sort of sitting with what we feel, what ideas come up when we think about this topic, um, maybe a story that is elicited that you've experienced in this way. Maybe someone like me came up to you one time and asked you if you had found the Lord or something. But Maybe we could take just a second to think about that, to feel that, and also if you are willing to share, um, we'd love to hear from you too.
Definitely. Definitely. I'll let Neil live. I'll let Neil live in this. There was a vote, though, and the vote did So the loudest voice was certainly Neil. Um, okay, so I want to let me say this. Without sort of clearly this discomfort is present for all of us in a lot of ways, but I do want to point out a couple things that I think might help us see this, at least from a slightly different perspective. The first is that this missional quality to Christianity uh, is actually something that's quite uh, revolutionary. Um, it may not seem as much that now in our modern times and our ways of seeing people, uh, but to see everyone as a potential convert is also to see everyone as inherently deserving and inherently equal, right, regardless of this is what it says in the Bible, regardless of nationality or gender or uh, race or economic status, everyone is invited and everyone is welcome to this thing. Uh, and you cannot underscore enough how truly radical that aspect is, particularly for the time in which it came from. Right? Every human being is made in the image of God and all are equal before the eyes of God. That is something that even is not even we still need to hear today, I would say, right? The Great Commission requires, this is uh, from a scholar, Eric Barreto at Princeton. He says, followers, the Great Commission requires followers of Jesus to experience a radical transformation, to see neighbors where we previously saw the other, right? to seek God's people wherever they might be. So let's remember that point, right? It's truly an affront to the, it's a, to have, twisted this in a, such a way that um, people exclude and judge and um, carry out evangelism in, in a way that is uh, over and not with, right? really is against, I think, 
what the core idea of it was. So getting back to that root, I think, is vitally important. Secondly, I think it's also worth mentioning that part of what feels uncomfortable, at least for me, and I think for many of us if we interrogate ourselves a bit, is that the Christian mandate uh, seems to come from this position of power. And that's what, like, that feels weird, right? For those, of a, for those who are like sort of in control of things, who are all around, um, when they're the ones who are trying to convert you, it doesn't feel like an invitation. It feels like a demand uh, to conform. And this, again, when this demand is shot through with all sorts of historical and political acts of violence, like we know that uh, that coercion, that feels like coercion, again, not invitation. When the effort is actually carried out, like it was in the beginning of those days by this small band of outsiders, outsiders who were actually persecuted by people in power, who what they were doing was very antithetical to the culture at large, I think that does change some sense of what it means to want to share. Lastly, uh, the most common forms of this kind of missional work we see seem to be influenced by a very particular kind of theological lens right, or a particular kind of theology, right? One that likes to emphasize hell, eternal damnation, uh, right? This argument is one that certainly is, makes less sense to most people nowadays, right? Which has, I think, much to do, as much to do with us living under a kind of different metaphysical, spiritual, scientific understanding of things, but also it has to do with the flattening of authority structures around us too, right? The priest who says there is a heaven and hell is no longer the arbiter of truth. And that's a good thing in a lot of ways, not as great for me, it would make my job a lot easier if everyone just did what I asked them to do, but uh, fire and brimstone talk, right, is sort of one of the great many problems amongst this idea of evangelizing. And I would say there's something really problematic about that in, fact, in the fact that if Christianity is supposed to be a message that is relevant for all people at all times across history, what that means to me is that a relevant message speaks to relevant needs. And so Christianity is also called to do a certain kind of diagnostic work to understand what it is that the needs of a culture and a time are. And even more importantly, to specific people who we have relationships with. And so perhaps coming to see the spreading of the gospel, evangelism, outreach, whatever you want to call it, differently means reaffirming these things, right? The radical nature of this message, right? Speaking from a position of meekness, as in the Beatitudes, right? And meeting the needs of the people that we encounter. What I'm trying to do today is start something like a longer conversation about this topic, what it means for uh, our community in particular, at Root and Branch, to be um, a community of invitation, both by reflecting on the wrong ways Christianity has lived out this missional mandate and core, but also I think what's important is that we reorient ourselves to what it means for us to share good news and what that good news actually is for us, right? If I could speak very plainly, you know, we're six years into this journey. Uh, we are still a church plant, and the drive to invite uh, and welcome others into a space is generally, you know, the beating heart of a church plant. If you are a church plant, that's what you do. And yet, we, as Liz said, are different than most, right? We are a church that is loudly uncomfortable with the fact that it is a church. 
And yet the strange thing is that we are a church not because we have to be, and none of us are here besides Amelia because they uh, have to be, right? Uh, we sit here and we wrestle and we fight with this tradition. We are uh, moved by a lot of its beauty, and we also recoil at a lot of its complications, right? And through it all, we're here because there is something good, some good news for us. But maybe because of all those things that I've mentioned before, the hardness of it, it's also difficult for us to talk about this sort of thing, which is so weird. I feel way more comfortable giving a sermon to you guys about how uh, a person could be both God and human or raised from the dead than I do about a topic like this. Crazy if you think about it. What I've come to find is important, what I'm growing more and more concerned about in some ways, is it's not about uh, whether or not we grow or whatever. I truly mean this when I say this, right? It's not whether about it's not about whether or not we grow and, and do this or that, right? Um, it's to ask ourselves whether or not there is actually good news here. Right? Good news for each of us, right? And if there's not, if that's not the case, I don't say this in a, a weird, some weird passive-aggressive way. I'm just saying it very plainly. Like, then uh, we really don't need to be here, right? Like, we're here, hopefully, because um, there's some good news you've heard here. This is about asking ourselves: In what ways have I found that? And in what ways? Do I share that with other people? And again, this is bigger than Root and Branch Church. Um, I'm talking about us as people in general living a different kind of life, one that is um, a life of invitation to other people around us, right? Not for the sake of bringing people into the pews, but that we can actually be people who affect other people's lives, right? And that can look so many different ways. Maybe you want to start up a dinner, regular dinner meeting with four of your closest friends. And instead of just eating, you'll do something a little intentional. Maybe it won't be religious at all, but maybe you will ask them, you know, uh, to talk about what they're thankful for or what they're amazed by or what they're upset about or what they're sorry for. Maybe it means being sensitive, more sensitive to people around you in your life that you know and can tell need community, need a sense of belonging, and, in, and being that for them, even if they might like weird music or go to weird places, you know, that sort of thing. Maybe that means asking kinds of questions and giving the kinds of answers to people that we often feel are too real to do in public or general spaces and normal conversations, right? Maybe that means uh, giving hope to other people through music or poetry. Maybe it also means inviting other people to sing together without shame or judgment in an apartment. Right. I was saying that before. Uh, yeah, thank you. And yes, of course, maybe some of that might mean inviting people into this space too. But ultimately, this is about becoming 
again, people of invitation, which is a way of living our lives so that we can see uh, full humanness, the full worth of people that we meet, be humble in our relationships with them, and offer something of what we've received to them. So it turns out that uh, Jose did start coming to the club. He showed up one day. Uh, he didn't just show up one day, he started showing up every day. Um, a year later, I was actually going to this club much less because uh, I was in student government then and, and I became cool and I didn't have time for that anymore. But uh, I did stop by now and then. And also that year, even though I was busy, I still was sort of part of this leadership team. And we had this initiative in the beginning. We're like, you know what? We're not going to meet here every day anymore because we need to be out amongst the people doing things, I don't know, but we need to not be meeting every day. And so we stopped doing that. Our advisor, I remember, was like, really hated it. You know, for him, it was, he was opening up his room for people. He loved it, and he made that decision. And I would go once in a while uh, and see that the advisor had decided, you know what, even if you guys don't want to officially hold meetings, I'm going to keep my door open every day. People can come here and hang out. And every day, Jose was there too, eating lunch, doing his thing. I don't know, actually, I, never, I don't know if he was actually Christian or anything like that. Um, I never asked him. Uh, and also, shamefully, I never befriended him, right? sort of in a way, talking about Bryce, right? I, I didn't develop a relationship with him. I just sort of saw him there. I was, in many ways, really too self-absorbed to, to care about anything beyond the fact that he was there, right? Uh, when I think about him as an adult, I feel pretty shitty about that, uh, but I also I'm thankful that even though I couldn't see, even though I couldn't see, even with all the weird stuff I was doing at the time, if I could just take my eyes off me for a second, I would have seen that this was really, all of that stuff was just for this kind of thing, right? This dude just wanted somewhere to uh, be where he wasn't alone. uh, People accepted him. The Great Commission, people. May we be people of invitation who can spread some good news to other people. Amen.